Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist John Brennan. Wimbledon 2021 is winding down in just a few days, and one of the big stories has been the unceremonious exits of Serena Williams and Roger Federer, each loss leading to speculation about whether we might have seen them at the All England Club for the last time. Hey, we all get old eventually, which makes me wonder, John. When we're too washed to podcast at the elite level we're used to <laughs> podcasting at, will we be the first to know it or the last to know it? Uh, or, or might we already be fading into Bolivian, to quote Mike Tyson, and everyone's been afraid to tell us? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was still covering the U.S. Open tennis tournament 20 years ago, and Federer was this sort of maybe guy with potential who would win a couple of rounds and then get bounced. And now Serena, she was already a star. Uh, I probably had lunch with her and her mom, sort of an informal practice interview set up by the women's tour, although surprise, surprise, she didn't need it. Believe me, as a teenager, um, must have been 1998 because she, I know she won in 1999. Mm. Uh, but at this point, if I covered a U.S. Open you played in, it's about time to hang up your racket. <laughs> you know? As for us, uh, well, you know, I did struggle through this week's interview uh, through absolutely no fault, no pun intended, of our guests. So I hope <laughs> That's not a sign. But, you know, I did finish the match, at least, you might say, unlike that poor British teenage girl who had to withdraw basically because her heart couldn't take the heat and pressure of the moment. So maybe we're just cagey veterans who have a little bit left, Eric. Yeah, maybe. Well, although you're, uh, you're you're breaking down the fourth wall there by revealing to the audience that the interview, which we'll moments uh, from now be saying is coming up, was actually already <laughs> recorded. Uh, that it's all yes. done out of order sometimes. Absolutely. Um, so I'm I'm turning 46 this month, and I'm yeah. deep into that period of my life where I'm searching for a word or a name. And it's not coming to me like it used to. Uh, do, doesn't mean that I'm washed, but I, I definitely think I'm past my prime in terms of mental acuity. The question is whether my experience and savvy can make up for it. Uh, I, I like to think that they can, that, you know, as far as my work goes, uh, I'm still better than ever. I don't know. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Um, certainly, though, it's uh, easier to produce into middle age in podcasting than in a physical sport. Uh, Federer and Serena both turn 40 in the next couple of months. It doesn't get any easier from here on out. It's time to turn it over to the younger generation, like, uh, you know, 34-year-old Novak Djokovic. Well, I got to say pedal to the metal, Eric, because uh, funny you say 46, because uh, when my dad was 92 and I told him, uh, you know, I think one of your issues is you're you're being a little bit too hard on yourself. And he looked at me very seriously and he said, oh, no, I don't think I'm nearly hard enough on myself. <laughs> and um, that's how you get to be 92, Eric. All right. I'm halfway there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 150 of Gamble On, a semi-milestone episode in between two legit milestone episodes. If you missed any of our previous 149 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please give us a five-star rating in honor of this almost kind of milestone occasion. 
Absolutely. And uh, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by VegasInsider.com's Kevin Rogers. Talk about Major League Baseball betting at the midpoint of the season. What are Kevin's takes on the upstart Red Sox and Giants and their long odds and how to bet on or against Jacob DeGrom and Garrett Cole, uh, how to approach season-long win total over-unders too. Uh, but first, it's been a busy week for me, at least, in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Our East Coast bias is going to show with the news segment this week, as all three of our stories center on states that border the Atlantic Ocean. We'll start with the one that has the least amount of Atlantic shoreline, New York. One week ago today, July 1st, was the date the New York Gaming Commission was supposed to release its Request for Applications, or RFA, on mobile sports betting. But as Matt Rybaltowski reported on Sports Handle, it became apparent with hours to go that the state would miss that deadline. And a source told Matt the delay could be as long as two weeks. This is expected to be a highly competitive bidding process, as there will not be 42 possible sportsbook skins like in New Jersey or 60 like in Maryland. We still don't know the exact number in New York, but signs are pointing toward just four. Uh, So this step in the process, the release of the RFAs, was eagerly anticipated in the industry. But alas, for now, we play the waiting game. State Senator Joseph Adabo has spoken repeatedly about expecting betting to launch before the Super Bowl. Does this delay jeopardize that, John? And do you take it as an indicator that all will not proceed so smoothly in New York that further delays might come? Well, um, I expect to lose on my no mobile as long as Cuomo's in office tickets, but not by a lot. (laughs) Hmm. I doubt he's going to run for another term in 2022. And uh, this mobile rollout won't be at the Super Bowl. It may come closer to Election Day in November, frankly, Hmm. than February Super Bowl. So but, you know, New York is such a lucrative prize that nobody involved or potentially involved wants to get within a thousand miles of seeming critical of this whole crazy process. Uh, I can tell you, though, it's not idle speculation on my part that this whole scenario has been, well, a uh, fuster cluck. I think I can say that. Yeah, <laughs> you can. I mean, so there are two platform providers and four mobile sportsbook operators, and your company can apply to be one or both. And some of the big operators, and that's all we're going to get here anyway, uh, mm-hmm. could wind up holding their noses and teaming up somehow. I mean, you've heard of the high maintenance gal or the high maintenance guy, and let's face it, it's worth it, right? That's the deal here. Uh, it's New York State. You know, I've been to a few state gaming commission meetings in Manhattan, and it's a genial and generally cooperative bunch. Um, I would not say they are familiar as a group with the term a New York minute. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Once they miss a mandated deadline with no repercussions, well, why rush it, right? So don't hold your breath here. Yeah. Wow. So you're, uh, you know, here I am thinking that, uh, oh, maybe this means it's going to be a few weeks after the Super Bowl or a month after the Super Bowl or something like that. You're, you're thinking this could stretch closer to Election Day. Uh, that, uh, but you know, look, on, in terms of the RFAs for is it, and is it RFAs or RFA? How do you pluralize that? I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, attorneys, uh, attorneys general. Right. Know, it's yeah. that thing again. Yeah. Um, for all we know, something could happen with that today while we're recording this. You know, the yeah. Matt source said up to two weeks could turn out to be a one week delay um, or who, who knows? Maybe it's more than two weeks. Maybe it's a whole month. And uh, yeah, getting mobile sports betting up and running in New York clearly isn't the number one priority in the state government. Very possible they'll miss the Super Bowl. But then I would think that maybe they would care enough to try to be ready in time for March Madness. Um, I know Adabo is frustrated. Uh, I don't know how much others in the state really care. Um, But you look at the timeline. So the bidding process 
has to be open for 30 days. And then the commission has 150 days to pick winners. So that's almost six months right there. It was going to be a little tight to launch by the Super Bowl, even if it, they'd hit the July 1st date. Um, the state also hasn't released its regulations yet, which we thought we might have seen by now. There's nothing going on that should make anyone confident that New York is a well-oiled machine entering this process. Uh, there are three deadlines you got to hit. You got to get the start of football season. And if you mm -hmm. miss that, like here, they're like, well, you got to get the Super Bowl at least. Then if you miss that, uh, even though the Giants and Jets won't be in it, um, although they're in New Jersey anyway, uh, and then <laughs> you have to make March Madness. Right? This is not going to make March Madness either. So once you okay. miss that, You've got like five months where, you know, it's not that big a deal week to week. Uh, baseball started, but not everybody bets on opening day in baseball. And, uh, you know, the NBA playoffs are good, but well, you already missed most of the season. So, yeah, I don't think this is a thing that's coming, coming anytime soon. All right. Nice, strong take from uh, from John Brennan that we're not even going to hit March Madness. Uh, and uh, and one thing uh, that I'll uh, agree with you on uh, is that with the cost of doing business in New York, the hefty fees, the high tax rates, it's it's pretty clear that the, the biggest names in the business are the ones that are going to get these licenses, however many or few their turnouts ultimately be. Um, one assumes DraftKings and FanDuel will claim two spots uh, and more on them in our next news story. Um, but I'm looking at the others thinking, Probably bet MGM, maybe Caesars, maybe a couple brands combined, as you said. Uh, but certainly, I, I don't think we're going to see uh, a Unibet or a Bet Fred. Uh, the, some of the smaller ones, definitely not uh, NY Action twenty four seven. I don't think we're going to see a mom and pop like that. Uh, it's 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 going to be only the big boys in New York. All right. Uh, moving just up the coast, we next go to Connecticut, another state that is preparing to welcome online sports betting and is preparing to do so without a whole lot of operators. There will be three, to be precise. And we've known all along that DraftKings would be one of them, thanks to its partnership with Foxwoods. But the big question was whether FanDuel would get in or might get frozen out, giving rival DraftKings, which already has a monopoly in New Hampshire, a big edge in New England. Uh, turns out, the two behemoths will get to battle it out in the nutmeg state as FanDuel announced a partnership with the other tribal casino in Connecticut, Mohegan Sun, on Wednesday. Uh, online casino is also coming to Connecticut. It's not just sports betting, uh, so that makes it even more important for FanDuel to plant its flag in the state. There is still a third operator coming as well in partnership with the state lottery. Uh, and meanwhile, in quick related news, both DraftKings and FanDuel have worked out deals to be able to continue to offer DFS in Connecticut without interruption, a threat we discussed a few weeks ago, although smaller DFS operators are getting squeezed out. John, thoughts on all this news out of Connecticut? Uh, how much doubt, if any, was there in your mind that FanDuel would snag one of Connecticut's three skins? Oh, yeah, zero doubt, Eric, for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, I think the real intrigue always has been uh, who gets to partner with the state lottery. You know, at least I think three or four big players would have to want it. You know, uh, Connecticut is small, but also it's very affluent. And more importantly, some of the nation's richest people live in Connecticut, but work in nearby New York, especially Manhattan. So, you know, this giant power broker who's just a ca casual gambler. Well, you don't want to risk losing a little credibility because you couldn't even wrestle that third skin away from the rival. I mean, this is alpha, alpha, alpha male territory. Mm. You know, like the upcoming Olympics, there are only three places on the Connecticut sports betting podium. Everyone else gets forgotten. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I too figured FanDuel would work something out. I had speculated uh, previously that maybe they had a better shot at the lottery skin than the Mohegan Sun skin. So that turned out to be wrong. So now the rumored front runner to work with the lottery is BetMGM. That's what I'm seeing. We'll see. Um, as for the DFS issue, 
I wrote an article in late May when both Florida and Connecticut were creating new threats to DFS. Uh, I interviewed Roto Grinders Dan Bach and Roto Wires Peter Schenke. And one of Schenke's concerns about Connecticut has been alleviated that there would be a period of several months, maybe covering all the football season with no DFS allowed in the state. So th that's not an issue now. But the other concern isn't looking great that there are probably just three licenses for DFS. DraftKings gets one, FanDuel gets one, someone else gets one, maybe Yahoo. Um, and the smaller sites that are innovating, trying new things like Monkey Knife Fight, Prize Picks, et cetera, they can't operate in the state, which I'm sure seems like small potatoes in the big picture of the sports gambling industry, but it's a big deal to those companies and, and to their current customers in Connecticut. Well, I think also, too, that this sets a little bit of a precedent where, you know, there are plenty of new states that are trying to figure things out and the, uh, the idea, well, what if we just did this? Well, yeah, Connecticut did or anybody, any other state did it. I mm -hmm. think it opens the door. So, yeah. And obviously, you know, for a consumer, more choice is better. So, you know, these limitations are silly. New York is too limited. Connecticut's going to be too limited. It just doesn't make much sense. I mean, you know, it's funny. We make fun of Maryland with their 60 skins and it's kind of <laughs> absurd. And, uh, you know, New Jersey, you know, as I said, uh, New Jersey regulators told me, you know, several years ago, they knew we wouldn't need, uh, you know, 36 to 42 skins, but right. they weren't sure how many they would need. And they have about 22 now, I think. So um, so that was a decent number. But the point is better to have too many than too few. Yeah. And New York and Connecticut have too few. Yep. Uh, all right. So let's move to another state that is uh, flirting with the idea of having way too few uh, sports betting options. Uh, let's move to the southern tip of the East Coast for our final news item. Things are happening in Florida. Things that convinced you to work on a company holiday on July 5th, John. Uh, over the long weekend, the first lawsuit challenging the state's new sports betting law was filed. Magic City Casino and Bonita Fort Myers Corp filed a complaint for declaratory judgment and injunctive relief in federal court against Governor Ron DeSantis. The complaint claims that the new law runs afoul of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Basically, it claims what friend of the podcast, Dan Wallach, told us someone would eventually claim. There are more details to the lawsuit. I'll let you break down those that you find notable, John. Uh, but first, I'll mention another Florida story as a campaign for a constitutional amendment to allow an open market for mobile sports betting in the Sunshine State, a counter to the law that was passed that favors the Seminole tribe, has drawn negative attention for featuring children in advertisements and social media posts. The group known as Florida Education Champions, which is backed by both DraftKings and FanDuel, is playing up the fact that sports betting tax revenue is supposed to go toward education. So people should vote for this so the kids get the help they need. It's manipulative and it's ethically questionable. And our colleague Brett Smiley wrote in depth about it on Sports Handle on Wednesday. Everyone should check that out. John, just how offensive do you find these posts featuring kids telling people to vote for more gambling? And what do you have to add about the first lawsuit challenging Florida sports betting? You know, what amazes me is how many eyeballs that the big DFS companies had to have reviewed this ad and said, hey, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, sure, you know, show a before and after of a playground renovated thanks to sports betting. Maybe like maybe a high school graduation with the camera from behind, mm -hmm. mainly showing a lot of caps with tassels in the air and the implication of how many of these kids only got there because their relatives spent so much money on losing gambling bets. But you can't put kids in any commercial about an adults only activity. Yeah. I mean, I always say, like, don't blame the person with the stupid idea for the commercial. Blame the people that were in the meeting 
you know, I mean, we all come up with stupid ideas, but that's the whole point of sort of peer review. Everyone else goes around and go, yeah, that's that's not going to work. And that, that's how it's supposed to work. So I blame the people who heard this dumb pitch and then decided, yeah, this is uh, this is going to work. Absolutely. Um, so as for the lawsuit, you know, so far it's played out exactly as we've expected. Um, we have to wait a few weeks to see what the new boss of the Department of Interior, who happens to be the first Native American ever appointed to the post, uh, decides whether to approve this compact between Florida and the Seminoles. But you know, I keep seeking anyone with a legal background to tell me what is inaccurate about Wallach's premise that the act oversees uh, tribal compacts with states that that does not allow uh, for any wagering outside of tribal lands. It seems set in stone. And there are people who are trying to ignore it or compare it to uh, states like New Jersey that don't have uh, Native American tribes and say, well, see, they they deem a bet to have been placed in Atlantic City because the server is placed there. I mean, it was kind of nutty when I first heard it a number of years ago in New Jersey, but you know, the legislature said that's what it is, so there's nothing stopping it. But here you've got federal precedent that absolutely says you can't do it. Um, I get that someone can call this law hopelessly outdated, and a bill just served in the House this week, uh, House of Representatives, that would modernize these rules, and that's fine. But that isn't going anywhere, you know, before the spotlight shines squarely on the new interior leader to make a hard decision. I would say this, the bottom line for Floridians who live near a Seminole-run casino in Florida, place your legal bets there sometime in October. It's going to happen. But for the millions of others in that state, I don't see it, not just yet. Um, well, I, I don't have much to add on the lawsuit, uh, although it's all connected. Uh, you know, that compact between the Seminoles and the governor is why we have Florida education champions throwing all its weight behind this ballot measure. And I'm rooting for them. It, it, it's better for consumers in Florida if there's an open market for mobile sports betting. But this is not the way to go about it. Uh, it shouldn't even have to be stated that you don't use kids in gambling advertising, just like you don't use kids in beer ads or Viagra ads or, or whatever else. Um, and it's just so transparent and so phony. You can push the concept of gambling tax revenue benefiting education without using pictures of children. Uh, I'd love to say people are smarter than that and can't be so easily manipulated, but we know that isn't true. Appealing with the most basic and manipulative of messaging does work up to a point in the political sphere. Um, but you have to find a way to do it ethically without using kids as props. I like the examples that, that you gave, that you can show a high school senior wearing cap and gown from behind, all a bunch of them seated together at graduation. There are ways that are, you know, technically, arguably some underage people are sort of pictured in a way you can get the message across without showing like a six-year-old kid, uh, you know, sitting in a classroom and smiling and what it's just unbelievable that, as you, as you said, that it got through various checkpoints and nobody said, uh, guys, uh, let's tear this up and, and come up with a new idea. I guess to be fair, it is Florida. They, they kind of <laughs> march to their own drummer, to be fair. Florida right. guy, Florida right, woman. Florida, okay. Right, Florida, <laughs> Florida man, man puts Florida child man, in Florida advertisement woman, yes. uh, for gambling. <laughs> yep, you're right. It, it might be cool happens. down there. We don't know. Right. <laughs> it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Boys of summer are heading into the heart of the summer as MLB teams have passed the midway point of the season and the all-star game awaits next Tuesday. Seems a good time to check in on what's happening in baseball and how the betting options are shaping up. So joining us now on the podcast is VegasInsider.com baseball analyst and longtime sports handicapper, Kevin Rogers. Kevin, welcome to Gamble On. 
Eric, good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us here. Now, we've seen more than half a season of baseball, so the sample sizes are, are not small at this point. Interestingly, the two teams with the best records in all of MLB right now, as of our Wednesday afternoon recording, are still priced as World Series long shots. Uh, the Dodgers and Astros, they're tied for the third best records. They're the favorites. But the Giants are plus 1,800 and the Red Sox are plus 1,500. We saw this in the NBA. The, the Jazz and Suns had the best records but weren't priced as real title threats. And now the Suns are in the finals. Do you think either the Giants or Red Sox are for real and thus are great value at those prices? You know, I don't want to ever say that someone is is a phony record or whatever the case is. The San Francisco Giants, Eric, starting with them, that it, it's just a great story what they've done. And that Dave Kapler, you're from Philadelphia, and I know a lot of Phillies fans were like, later, get out of <laughs> here. And he's done really well with the Giants, succeeding Bruce Bochy, who won three titles there. And the Giants had a lot of turnover, but are still very competitive. They didn't have Buster Posey last year. Now he's back, and they've gotten really good pitching performances, career years from Kevin Gosman, who was a journeyman for a bit, and Anthony DiSclefani, and you still have Johnny Cueto in there. So the Giants have a really good core and a decent lineup, and somehow they found a way to get this far to be ahead of the Dodgers slightly and also ahead of the Padres, two teams that everyone thinks will be in the NLCS. I don't know if San Francisco can keep it up all the way to the end. They've had a really good start so far. But when you look at the Boston Red Sox, 15-6 and six this season they are against the Yankees, Rays, and Blue Jays. The other teams they're competing with in the AL East. So Boston's held their own against those teams. Remember after the first series of the year, they want to fire Alex Cora after they got swept by the Orioles at home? Right. And now Boston has the best record in the American League. They're doing it without Chris Sale. Obviously, they traded Mookie Betts before last year. But they're finding a way with this rotation that really a lot of people don't know these guys like the Nathan Avaldis of the world and also Nick Pavetta, who was a really nice pickup from the Phillies last year, and Eduardo Rodriguez, who missed last year due to some you know COVID issues. But I got to tell you, Alex Cora won a World Series with the Red Sox a few years ago. He sat out last year due to the suspension. They needed him back there. I just think out of the two, even though the Red Sox are in a more competitive league, I have more faith in them than I do in the Giants to go far. Hmm. And and you call, said that's the more competitive league. Would you say, though, that just the fact that the Dodgers stand in the Giants' way in, in the National League partially accounts for why their price might be a little higher than, than the Red Sox? Or is it more just what you're saying, that people are taking the Red Sox more seriously, viewed as less of a po possible fluke at this point? I would just say that the Dodgers, people are expecting them eventually, or at least in a seven-game series. Do you like the Dodgers or the Giants? And now that you have Trevor Bauer with his off-the-field issues, you know that's going to hurt L.A. depending on how long that takes. But the Dodgers still have Walker Buehler and Clayton Kershaw and still have a very strong rotation. They have a great lineup. And you know, I guess I look at it from this perspective too, Eric, that even in hockey, like the Vegas Golden Knights a few years ago, they were an expansion team, long shot to win it. They got all the way to the Stanley Cup final, lost to Washington. When it was all said and done, you had nothing to show for it if you took Vegas. Same thing with the right. Giants here. I feel like they can get to the NLCS, and if they lose, it's a great season, but you have nothing to show for it. So I just think that the Dodgers in the National League, even though you don't have the same competition as the American League, that it's going to be very tough to see someone beat them four times in a series where in the American League is a little more wide open than that. Gotcha. 
Yeah, Kevin, can you talk about, uh, you know, baseball fans in general are getting obsessed with spin rates and uh, sticky stuff and what's happened in the last three or four weeks and what does that tell us about the future? And in particular, in, in uh, I would say in, in the New York area, you've got uh, Roldis Chapman, who's completely fallen apart, and Gary Cole has admitted he's got some issues and uh, he doesn't seem to think he's going to be able to pitch as well now that he has to make some adjustments. So I'm just curious if uh, – the betting lines reflect that if fans really have an opportunity to say go against the Yankees, go against any any pitcher that has struggled the last month, or is that sample size too small? I mean, is there an opportunity there, I guess, for the uh, amateur gambler here? I would say, John, I mean, possibly. I, I marked down all of Garrett Cole, or at least the Yankees' losses when Garrett Cole started this year. You guys are going to be astounded mm-hmm. at some of these prices. He was yeah. over 240 in four of those starts. So wow. just a massive favorite. He was laying 193 separate times. And again, it's unfair, I think, sometimes to put it on the starting pitcher because Garrett Cole can pitch well and then the bullpen can fall apart. And then Garrett Cole's got nothing to show for it because the bullpen blew it. Now, all this, I don't think, goes on Garrett Cole because the Yankees offense has been so up and down this year. And they've had several times where they just can't score in spite of all the bats that they have. But with Cole, I just can't trust backing him at any of those prices. I remember earlier in the year, and yeah. this is so rare, against Shane Bieber and the Indians, he was laying 110. That's a bargain to take Garrett Cole at. But I'm not going to lay 240 with Garrett Cole against anybody. That's just not going to happen. And yeah. you wonder how much longer this is going to happen as far as you know the numbers just totally going down the toilet for him as opposed to the beginning. But all those heavy prices, I would not back him until he gets back on track. Well, would you jump the other direction and say, absolutely, I'm going I'm going against them, or are you just staying away from the games generally? I would say stay away. I mean, because mm-hmm. I don't think that you really – I don't think a lot of people would really have, in a lack of a better term, the stones to say, I'm going to take the Royals plus 240 against Garrett Cole. I mean, right. look at the losses against the Royals, the Tigers, you know, and you kind of say, like, what is this? But, you know – these things happen to and the Rangers too, that he's lost a couple of these games to lower tier teams that he's not exactly. I mean, I know the Red Sox knocked him around, uh, you know, in the last series, but again, you're losing these lower tier teams. What good is it laying 270 against the Royals or whoever it is with Garrett Cole, because he cannot pitch well or the bullpen can blow it. It could happen with anybody. I just think that these numbers are just way out of whack. Um, all right. So, uh, Kevin, we were just talking about uh, a pitcher who's who's struggling. Uh, I want to talk one about one who is not struggling much at all. Um, I, I love betting on the season end awards at various points throughout the season. And I'm fascinated by Jacob deGrom's place in the NL picture. I'll ask you about Cy Young. But first, MVP. Can we safely say it's between deGrom and Tatis for NL MVP? And, and who do you like more, deGrom at plus 125 or Tatis at plus 175? You know, I think this, well, first of all, to kind of like divert for a second, the Cy Young, the only way DeGrom doesn't win is if he gets hurt. There is mm-hmm. 0% chance that he doesn't win it if he's healthy. Like, like he definitely has to win it. And, the, pro, and the, the worst part about it is there's a lot of guys having really good seasons in the National League. But unfortunately, DeGrom is having a historic season. So that's why those other guys won't be in the running unless DeGrom gets shut down now and doesn't pitch. And honestly... I don't know how he wouldn't win it even with these numbers because they're so great. But as far as the MVP goes, you know, that's a little more of a debate because, you know, it's more wide open for going against position players that the one thing DeGrom definitely has on his side is that the Mets are in first place is that if the Mets were a third place team or, you know, I know the NL East is kind of fluid now and the Mets can go backwards. And, you know, I feel like the Braves and Nationals and Phillies are all like 
like tripping over each other or trying to get to first place. They just can't get there yet. But if one of those teams were to get there, maybe it hurts DeGrom's chances. But DeGrom, for what he's done for this Mets team, it's like an automatic win every time he goes out to the mound. Even his last start against the Braves, he gave three runs in the first and still struck out 14. And he still pitched well. The Mets still lost that game in the ninth inning. So he still gave him a chance to win. But as far as him versus Tatis, it's going to be really difficult because Tatis is having a great season. He's a young superstar. He's on the San Diego team that will probably be in the playoffs, may not win their division because you're stuck with the Dodgers. But I would say that it's not a bad gamble because we've seen a couple of guys win MVPs and Cy Youngs in the same season. So I don't think it's crazy to think that. But DeGrom's putting up these numbers on a first-place team. He's got to be in cons- under consideration to win an MVP award. Does his offensive production make a little bit of if it's real if it's a real tight vote and someone's debating which way to go does does that you think make a difference for some voters I mean he's not Shohei Otani obviously in terms of the uh, do, doing it from both sides but the fact that he's actually got a bunch of RBIs and a bunch of key hits does that maybe push him over the edge for MVP I don't see why it doesn't that if you're getting these hits and and you're winning a game let's say three to two and you got an RBI in the game and also you allowed a run or two, how does that not factor in? Because you're, you're not only doing it on the mound, but also at the plate. So I think anything he almost does has got to be some kind of factor. It's, it's kind of like on the flip side with, with position players that you could be a great hitter, but if you're not a great fielder, then people don't necessarily look at that. They always look at your home runs, your RBIs, your average. So it's got to kind of go both ways that, you know, I know that, Again, American League pitchers have no control over that because they don't hit. But National League pitchers, you shouldn't get – I guess the funny thing is you shouldn't get penalized if you're an 050 hitter. But also if you're hitting 300, I know it's a, not the same sample size, that should credit you in a sense because you're doing something to help your team out, and especially the Mets. We know they're a little bit inept offensively at times. So if he's going to be one of their better hitters when he's in the lineup, then I can only help him. Yeah. And, and you answered my question about Cy Young before I even had to ask. It was simply that he's at minus 700, which is like unheard of uh, at this point in, in a season. But that basically to take someone else, you are purely betting on a DeGrom injury to make anyone else even worth considering. Yeah. And, and there are guys that are, you know, I mentioned Kevin Gosman before the Giants. He's having a fantastic season. There are a couple of guys that are having career years. But unfortunately, when you see what DeGrom is doing, you got no shot. And again, if DeGrom was shut down today, I don't know how he still wouldn't win the Cy Young. That why do you have to pitch an entire season when even in a half season, what DeGrom has done when you have an ERA around one, right? That's got, I mean, in three starts is one thing, but in 14 or 15 starts, that, that definitely has to mean something. And I know people probably, they want to do the whole season thing that that's, you could still be the best pitcher in baseball with 15 starts. Yeah, Kevin, I, I'm trying to uh, maybe learn something that I've learned the hard way, I think, which is that I tend to fall in love with a team in the preseason over-unders, you know, 77, 82 wins. And I think, you know what? I think they've got a shot at a wild card. They could surprise a few people. And I and I think the Cubs might be a good example this year. Uh, two weeks ago or so, they're in first place. And uh, you figure, yeah, they're going to they're gonna go over. They'll be fine. They'll, they might add something down the stretch to try and even win the division. And then all of a sudden, they completely collapse. And now they're not that many games out of trying to get your over with a long season left. And yet the feeling is they're going to sell off a lot of parts and then they're never going to get to the, uh, the win total because they're not even trying to, they're rebuilding. So I'm just wondering if it's uh, a little bit of a little bit dangerous to 
pick a mediocre team or, or a projected mediocre team to go over the win total. When if you fall even a little bit behind mid mid late July, they're going to give up, you know, because they don't care about your bet. They're worried about the following season. It's a hard one. And I'll tell you why. The Cubs are a great example because Chicago didn't have a lot of expectations going in. You thought, okay, Chris Bryan, Anthony Rizzo, all these guys are going to get traded off and the Cubs will just kind of, you know, get through the season, start all over again. But then they tricked everyone because they played so well to start the season. And then all of a sudden, like you said, they fell off the cliff, an 11 game losing streak. And they're not getting squeezed in these games. They're just not looking good. And, and that's the problem. This was a team, this core won a World Series. Uh, what six years ago? I mean, it feels or five years ago, 2016. It feels so long ago now, but they still have a lot of these core players in the lineup. Granted, the pitchers have have changed, but as far as you know, Brian and Rizzo and Javi Baez, that, that they're still good players there. That it's a tough one because you you know what I always like to look at it this way: that you want to try to find those teams in the 60s and the 70s and say, yeah. okay, who's going to jump? Who's going to win 80 games? And again, if your total is 70. If you're asking him to be a little below 500, you're a winner. You're not even asking him to make, make the playoffs or win the whole thing. But then on the flip side, with like a team like the Dodgers, you don't want to hope they win 100-something games because they lose seven straight or have a couple losing streaks. Like, oh, well, they don't care. They, they, they're fine getting to 97 wins. So I don't really have a problem with that. I think that if you could find – don't go crazy with it, but if you could find one of those teams, you were all right with the Cubs. It was fine. You didn't predict an 11-game losing streak. And, you know, that kind of takes you, you know, off the cliff. And, I mean, shoot. You know, if you took Arizona this year, you know, you could pretty much, you know, burn that ticket, you know, and uh, never look at it again. And, and you know, you're not going to, you know, you have no shot at that. But I don't really have a problem going with those low teams and trying to find someone who can just be around the 500 mark. But again, you have to avoid these long losing streaks. And, and 162 games is a long time is a long season, but 11 games, that's a that's a killer if you have that. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've, I'm kind of agreeing with you in that. I think, yeah, looking at a 70 to 72 projected win team and figuring, well, they might be a little better than you think. They may be a little under that, you know, in, in end of July, middle of August. They may just finish a little bit strong. They bring up somebody from the minors and they do well because they're not trying to get any worse. They're already not that good. Whereas that mid-level team, I'm starting to think that it's a little bit dangerous because uh, I, I think the Cubs are going to sell off some pieces. And I think uh, if you've got them over, you got some issues <laughs> coming ahead. Well, well, and also, too, one other point, like, you know, teams like the Pirates, you know, or Orioles, like, you know, you, you say maybe, you know, at the end, they, they'll try to play well to finish off the season where a team like the Cubs are like, forget it. Like we, we've been here before, you know, yeah. so that's kind of the other thing that those teams, you, you see them maybe play well at the end. It could be a little deceiving their record because they play well just to give the young guys, you know, you're a young guy that is playing for a contract. Like, I hate, I don't want to ever say someone's not trying, but I feel like on those young, on those teams with a lot of young players, they want to play better because there's pride there where other teams are like, forget it. We're veterans. We got this. Let's just finish this off. Yeah. All right. Great talking to you, Kevin. Uh, listeners, you can keep up with Kevin's work at VegasInsider.com and follow him on Twitter at VI Rogers. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. All right, Eric and John, thank you so much. Two men, Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll.
I don't quite want to say we're on a roll, John, uh, but we're not not on a roll. A solid winning week for both of us. Here's the breakdown. Um, first, one futures bet is complete. A small loss. My $20 at 8-1 to one on the Hawks to beat the Bucks in seven games lost. However, I am made up for that and then some with my prop bet on Chris Middleton to go under 27.5 points in game five. It was a sweat, uh, but he finished with 26, so we won $100 on that. Uh, you took a slight loss in golf as Kokrak top 20 won you $63. Simpson top 20 lost you $50 and DeChambeau to win was a $20 dent in the bankroll. So that's a loss of $7 overall in the golf, but you more than made up for it with your bet on Joey Chestnut to eat at least 75 hot dogs. He found the spirit of 76. Uh, you bet a hundred dollars to win $85 on that. Add it all up. And we won $158 on the week. We are now down by $781. We also have $1,532 on holding futures bets. So that leaves us with $7,687 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Well, you know, you always wonder when you hit rock bottom, Eric, and then maybe we did. So I hope um, so. <laughs> I was hoping this also was the week that you gave the update on our preseason baseball bets. But I guess the end of the All-Star week uh, next week will have to do. But I'm going to adjust my bets a little bit accordingly. So I'm not okay. sure exactly where our bankroll is headed. So um, now since most of the top golf pros are skipping this week's John Deere classic quote unquote in Iowa I'll skip it too and mirror them meaning we're all thinking about next weekend's British Open anyway and this is my chance to make a play before that starts to the crack of dawn and before uh, next Thursday Uh, so just two modest plays here to win Louis Oosthuizen in 20 for plus 2200 and Victor Hovland 20 at plus 2500 okay Cool. I am going with another NBA playoff player prop. Uh, Game two of the finals is tonight. And I like the prop on Chris Paul's points plus rebounds plus assists. The line is 35 and a half. And there's only minus 106 juice on the over at FanDuel. In game one, Paul put up a line of 32-9-4, which adds up to 45 bit of an outlier there he doesn't normally put up numbers quite that big then again in the closeout game against the clippers right before that he had a 41 8 4 which adds up to 53 uh, now his averages in the regular season were just 16 9 4 and a half which adds up to 29 and a half but he's playing more minutes now and he's simply on a mission to win the title and i'm sure he wants to be named mvp uh, i think he's a good bet to score at least 25 points tonight But even if he can't, even if the shot isn't falling, then he can turn to racking up more assists. We could see like an 18-15-4 game from him if he's not putting up 25 points. So my bet is over 35.5 combined PRA for CP3, risking $106 to win 100. And if he gets hurt in the second quarter, as he is prone to do i assume you'll get a refund because that's uh, how these books work nowadays <laughs> so anyway i'm going to baseball uh you darvis has a 212 era and 11 starts at home 202 era and night games uh so for tonight give me the padres for 50 at minus 143 even against the nationals and max scherzer okay um so Uh, I'm not loving the boxing menu for this weekend. There's only one notable card. It's on Friday night. Um, I'm not finding any props on these fights yet. Just simple winner bets. Um, So I'm just doing one small long shot bet on boxing. Lightweight bout between Jojo Diaz and Javier Fortuna. Very evenly matched. I think it could go either way. Diaz is the slight favorite, less than two to one. I'm not betting Diaz. I'm not betting Fortuna. 
I'm just betting the draw at 16 to one. Uh, Diaz fought to a 12 round draw in his previous fight. This could be another one that's close and tough to score. One of these times it's going to hit. Maybe it's this Friday. Let's go $15 to win $240 on a Diaz Fortuna draw. Um, And then let me also do a small MMA bet. Uh, I don't follow MMA. I don't know Jack about the sport really, but I know that Conor McGregor is always a little overpriced, that he's popular and people like to bet him. And everyone I trust who does know MMA is saying Dustin Poirier should be a slightly bigger favorite than he is for this fight. So at minus 126, let's just do a small bet. Don't want to go overboard on a sport I don't follow. Let's go $63 to win 50 on Poirier to beat McGregor. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Kevin Rogers. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, yeah, apparently they had something called the match on Tuesday with Bryson DeChambeau and Phil Mickelson and a couple of NFL quarterbacks that I didn't even watch this golf match, whatever it was. Uh, But I did notice a promotion where they said that as a DraftKings ambassador, Bryson DeChambeau will have a special donation challenge on the eighth hole where his drive distance will determine the amount of meals the company donates to Feeding America. That's the name of a company, Feeding America in caps. 300 yards equal 300,000 meals. 400 yards equal 400,000 meals. 500 yards equal 500,000 meals. Oh, sorry, hungry people of America. Bryson shanked that one 289 yards. No meals for you. Uh, that's the implication. Uh, now, to be clear, I imagine this event actually raised millions of dollars for some fine charities. So even if I don't care who won, it's a net positive, and I'm glad it happened. But guys, hard as it is for all of you to believe, there are real live people out there who need these meals to survive. Don't make this sound like a dystopian novel where people are fed or they starve based on your whims. Just give them the damn money. All right, rant over. And with that, until next time, gamble on. Gamble on.